Okay, well, we continue uh, in the study of the epistle of James. What makes James unique, different, special, anything? This epistle to James? It is a very unique and special epistle. What did Martin Luther call it? Say again? Straw. Straw epistle. He did, you know, because he was so big on justification by faith, which is true. Uh, he believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. But James also brings in the importance of works. Inner faith, inner belief should be manifested in outward works. We'll see that as we go through this. What else about the epistle of James? Yes, John. Yeah, right. And who is James? You know, there's three James mentioned in the Gospels. The half-brother of Jesus. You know, uh, the, and he becomes a pillar in the early church. You'll see that clearly in Galatians chapter 2, but especially in Acts chapter 15 when they have that big council uh, about what must the Gentiles keep in regards to the law, kosher, Sabbath, and James is, is like the leader. You know, he's the spokesman. And uh, very humble, a servant. Many think that this might be the earliest epistle uh, in the Bible. This, First uh, Corinthians, and uh, earliest gospel would be uh, Mark, perhaps. But James is early. And his style is uh, real quick. And it's almost proverbial. You know, he gives these little snippets, snippets. It's not like Romans where he lays out a case line by line. He's a little, he's different like that. And of course, he's writing, he says here, um, to the diaspora, to the uh, James about chapter 1, uh, he's writing to these, uh, the 12 tribes scattered, as he says. Very similar in 1 Peter, where he says in verse 1, he's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadice. So he's kind of writing uh, to this spread of uh, the Jewish population uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And that's one of the reasons the church did grow, don't forget, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And sometimes we, we think, okay, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. But who were, where, where was the church headquarters initially? Jerusalem, which is very interesting because that's where their founder was crucified and risen. And so they had such boldness to literally start the church, early church, in the very epicenter of where uh, the resurrection was. And of course, the enemies, all they had to do to disprove it was what? Produce a corpse. And they're, they're staying right in Jerusalem. There it is. But their lives and their deaths especially proved that it indeed was true. Um, so the idea, and also, also when Paul travels, he goes to these cities of Ephesus, Philippi. Where does he usually make first contact? Synagogue. You know, what we in sales you'd call your warm market. Of course, he was a rabbi. And so he was invited sometimes. I don't know if they always appreciate the message after he developed it, but uh, he would go to synagogue. So we have to appreciate the fact that uh, the dispersion actually furthered uh, the uh, growth of the gospel in that Mediterranean Roman uh, world. A couple of points on uh, Bob James real quickly. Uh, this is hard, I'll just read it. Um, he uses vivid illustrations. He quotes often from the Old Testament. Of course, he's writing to a Jewish audience. Um, he uses paradoxes. You know, he talks about uh, the grass withered flower. He uses metaphors. He'll use nature a lot. You know, tame, we can tame all the animals, but we can't tame the tongue. Tongue is like a little fire. You know, and he talks about how life is like smoke, a vapor. He'll use 
a lot of nature. Uh, he does sharp contrast, the humble, the proud, the rich, the poor. Um, he's big on brotherhood. He, he says brethren. You know, he's got like a pastor's heart. He's always, he's, he can be harsh. I mean, he's in correction and, and admonitions, but he's got a heart of a pastor. He uses a lot of figures of speech. He'll use similes, like or as. Uh, he has harsh rebuke of sin and sinners, but he has a clear call, many of those addressed in this letter, to repent. He, he brings us back to, you know, get right with God, and this, this idea of repentance runs through uh, the, the epistle of James. So, last week, uh, it was kind of an intro, we got down to about uh, verse 8, but here, it, 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 what he's setting up here is he goes, you're going to have testing or trials. And many of these are exterior. What's some of the trials or testings they might have in the exterior? exterior? This big first century Roman Greco world. What were some of the problems they might have? Persecution. Persecution. You know, and you see that in the book of Acts when Jews were literally kicked out of Rome. You know, they were just expelled, you know, just for being Jewish, let alone being Christian. So there's persecution. Dispersion. Remember the, the uh, Acts chapter eight, verse one. Persecution coming. They're scattered all over the place. So you see that. Um, the other thing, they they were a new faith. I don't know if we can properly appreciate what ha that was a tsunami change. Uh, when you think of these Jewish people, were now including Gentiles in their in their belief system, who were not keeping kosher, proper dietary. They were not keeping Sabbath. Uh, they were not keeping circumcision, you know, uh, male child on the eighth day. All of these things, and the new covenant is coming. That 2,000 years later, we could, okay, big deal. But it was a big deal. You understand what I'm saying? So that could, that could lend itself to persecution and misunderstanding. You know, it was really big. But just to have Gentiles come in, I mean, what did they call Gentiles? What was the nickname they gave them? Dogs. Mainly because of their diet. They just ate whatever. And the, the Jews prided themselves that they kept kosher. They kept dietary purity uh, like they would today. Or like a Muslim would keep um, halal. You know, but not so with the Gentile world. Because one thing, Jesus says it not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but rather what comes out of a man's mouth. So we have the exterior persecutions and pressure. And then he's going to talk about inner uh, temptations, lust anger, uh, bitterness. So from without and within, James is offering us a quick course, so to speak, or instruction of how to live that victorious Christian life, dealing with the outside stuff, dealing with inner. Uh, sometimes we might be able to deal with this out here better, and not so much the inner, or vice versa. Any thought on this? But This is what James is kind of addressing. But through it all, he says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father above, who gives it liberally and doesn't... Why would that be important? Well, what is wisdom? What is a working definition of wisdom? Or what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Okay, God-given, man-given. It says in Proverbs, get wisdom. That's the chief thing. Wisdom tends to be, uh, knowledge might teach us how to make a living, but wisdom teaches us how to live a life. Wisdom is heavenly knowledge, so to speak, that God gives to his people, both through the written word and also through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of how to live life, discern choices, and to move forward uh, that we can use knowledge properly. 
Like my old preacher friend used to say, you know, knowledge will take a man to the moon, but wisdom will get a man to heaven. Yes, Marina. Knowledge is knowing that it's made of the fruit. Wisdom is knowing you don't carry the fruit salad. Okay. I'm not, it'll be on the tape. Forever. Um, uh, and wisdom is knowing when to say it. Okay. So um, that's what he's, but we should ask, is my point. When God, whenever God says ask for something, ask for it. You know, how do we receive salvation? To as many as received him, to them he gave it. James will later say in the book of James, we have not because we ask not. Ask for wisdom. You know, you know, we are rapidly in the informational age now. We put high degree of um, accomplishment on information. Never before has information been exchanged so quickly as it has today. You know, through the internet, through the computer systems, through travel, you name it. But they say never before has man felt more alienated or lonely or depressed or anxious. You see? Why? Because we cannot ride that roller coaster of knowledge alone if it's not tempered with wisdom. And that's what, yes please. So you say wisdom is recognition of truth? Yeah, that's a good way. Recognition of truth and application. Re recognition of truth, you know, this is, the world was created. You know, the world was created in an orderly fashion by an infinite, uh, timeless, compassionate, all-loving, all-powerful. Well, that ne doesn't necessarily come from just knowledge, but that comes from God's revelation, especially when he describes his attributes, man's condition, redemption, etc. See, so yeah, good point. Okay, so then he says, um, don't let the double-minded man, if he's unstable and all. James is going to show us how to be stabilized, so to speak. I mean, when you think of double-minded, you think of Peter sometimes. The guy, just like this morning, he was the one that said to Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But three verses later, he says, when Jesus says, I have to go to the cross and be handed over to the Gentiles, Peter says, no, don't do it. And Jesus says, get thy behind me, Satan. When he sees Jesus walking on the water, Peter what? He'll jump out. Lord, tell him, I'll walk to you. Okay, come on, Peter. And then he looks around and he starts sinking. They'll all deny you, he says, but I won't deny you. Now, he does get solid after the, after the Pentecost, especially. But the idea of that double-mindedness, you know, kind of wavering. Okay, now he gets into this thing of wealth. That's where we'll pick it up in verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers uh, the grass, its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away uh, in his pursuits. And you'll see this theme is uh, through scripture, this idea of using flowers and grass um, to speak of the um, impermanence of not just uh, wealth, but life itself. You know, James will later go on to say, again, uh, life is like a vapor. You know, it just, you know, it, I mean, we can all attest to that, you know. You know, they say within 80, in every 80-year-old man, there's an 8-year-old that says, hey, what just happened? You know, <laughs> but I mean, life is like that. It just moves. The key is to fix ourselves on that which doesn't change. Yes? Yeah, please. Pretty what? Yeah.
Yeah, and again, you're talking a Greco-Roman world that power and wealth was your identity. That's who you were. You know, when you had wealth, you had multiple servants, you had power, and so when our Lord comes, he like flips things. You know, he, he, that, that's not the most important thing in life anymore. That's why he'll say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? You know, he, he says, or what would you give in exchange for your soul? So what he's getting at is, that's not the most important thing anymore. Somebody suggested Jesus, like he got in the showroom of life and reversed all the price tags. You know, the first shall be last, the greatest among you will be your, the, the servant, you know, uh, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven or rust and don't get at it. You know, he, he kind of changes the whole paradigm of human existence, so to speak. But this idea of wealth is very important. And you'll see this in the scripture when you think about the, the, um, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. He had it all, so to speak, but he wanted more. He wanted to know about everlasting life or how he could be right with God. And of course, the thing that was holding him back from having that relationship with God was all these material things, which is one of the problems that we're going to see with wealth. Not that wealth is wrong in itself, but wealth tends to indicate, number one, the person can be very self-satisfied and he doesn't feel he has a need for anything. Okay, And you'll see this uh, when you look at uh, some of the parables our Lord gives about uh, for, for example, uh, let me just put a couple of these up here. Um, Proverbs says this, when you set your eyes on it, that is to say wealth, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. In other words, it's, it's gone. A good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Favor is better uh, than silver and gold. Uh, again, the idea that wealth is fleeting, it, it's not really... It's a good thing to be used for kingdom purposes and support our family and all that, but when it becomes the main thing, uh, it can actually be destructive. When man lives for that, it's problematic. And I mean, we see that in our, in our own life, you know, we, uh, these cautionary tales. I mean, um, you think of Bernie Madoff, you know, I mean, that whole scheme first started in his heart. James is going to talk to that, where it first starts in the inner being. And he had enough, he was an investor, but he wanted more and more and more. And we know the story, he cheated, he lied, he stole, he did, and he built this whole thing, and he never had enough. He had to get more and more, which included more innocent investors. And finally, the whole thing collapsed, and destruction and death literally resulted in people that took their lives, his own son took his life, and he ended up in prison for a lifetime. But I'm getting, what I'm getting at, it's that idea of the misappropriation of wealth. That's the problem. Money is not the problem, uh, okay? Uh, that's not the root of all evil. It's what? The love of money is, is the root of all evil. Matter of fact, Jesus will give the famous parable of the man that had a great harvest, and he said, you know, he, he, his business expanded, his crops, he, he tore down this barn, he increased more barns, and then he had another good year yet, and then at the end, he says, take ease, my soul, uh, basically, be satisfied. You, you got it set up for life. And then what did God say? Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be. See, the fool has said in his heart there's no God. So if you study that parable, look at the number of times he used the pronoun I. I got this. I got this. I'll build more barns. I'm self-sad. I, again, prosperity wasn't the issue, but that's the only thing that his life was about. He forgot about God. Yes, please. 
There's not nobility in wealth or poverty. And, and if you study scripture, it seems to me that's not the issue. Uh, but the issue is, uh, is our relationship to God first and foremost. And then how do we use the, what, what he's blessed us with? Somebody else had their hand up on this? Okay. Yes, please. That's the big problem is dependency. If a man has it all, he doesn't sense any need, even in terms of God. I mean, it just doesn't enter. Uh, and that's why wealth, at, at one level, it's simply a distraction. It can just be a distraction, like a, a shiny toy or an object that distracts this person for most of his life, and he ends up, that's all he has at the end of his life. You see? And that's why, that's really being impoverished. The key to life is relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and then our relationships one with another, starting with primary relationships, husband, wife, children, father, it, it go that way. A person has that, he's wealthy. He could have a lot of money or not money, but that's the key to, you know, to close off. Yeah, you know, what's it say at the end of it's a wonderful life? No man is poor that has friends. Never in the book, anyhow. Um, so, uh, whosoever trusts in riches will fall, uh, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. All these admonitions, it's not trusting. And this is what I like, because this really speaks not just to the rich young ruler, but it speaks of uh, success indicators in modern society, when you look at this. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. We could say the well-educated or the whatever. Let not the mighty man glory in his might or his strength you know, physical might and strength. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. This is the epitome of success, let's say in GQ magazine. Wealth, power, celebrity, physical strength. The Bible is saying that's not it. They're not bad things in and of themselves, but the man should glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. That's true success. Now these others could come in that, in that way. And that's, that's the big issue today. What man seeks after, man is seeking after happiness. And happiness in itself is not a good end time goal. The key to life, as Pastor talked this morning, is to glorify God. And he does that by transforming us, and our main goal, so to speak, is holiness. Now, I believe if we truly seek holiness, that happiness will come. If we, if we seek happiness and not holiness, I think we get neither. It can happen, you see. But if we make that goal, I want to glorify God with my life, whatever I have, however, whatever he puts in my hands or whatever, can that somehow be glorified to God? 
and I love this verse here because it's so relevant. I mean, this thing is written 3,000 years, but so relevant to popular culture today. Any thoughts on that? Any, any of these? Just kind of cruising through James here. Okay, we'll, we'll get that in a minute. Okay. Now, he says here, um, he goes on and, and, and shows how it's fading. These things are going away, you know. And again, particularly those that have traveled overseas to different places in Greece and Italy, uh, wherever, and you see the ruins of famous builders, you know, like uh, Caesar or Herod the Great. It's remarkable. You know, it still stands today, but what is it? I mean, what, what, their lives were terrible when you study history. And the things that they put wealth in were, you know, just transitory. You know, you, it's kind of in a museum today. Um, now he says in verse 12, James chapter 1, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he is approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who serve him. And he gets into this whole thing about temptation. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now this brings up a very interesting thing. What is the difference between temptation and testing? Or is there a difference? Yes. Okay. 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 Both good. Good. Yes. The idea being that God may test you to strengthen your faith, but He will never tempt you to subvert your faith. Okay. For example, when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold to Gentiles, basically as a slave, wrongly accused when he lived in Egypt. Was he tempted by Potter's first wife, or was he being tested? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> well, in a very real sense, God permitted that to happen. True? Yes? I mean, I mean God... Everything is, so to speak, filtered through God. Yeah? Even what the devil can do. He couldn't do everything he wanted to do to Job, right? He says, let me do this, let me do this. That's why Martin Luther says the devil is God's devil, but he's still God's devil. He's got a leash on him. He can only go so far. But that, that same similar temptation scenario with Judah and Tamar testing, you know, she's on the side of the road dressed like a harlot. He falls. That, that, that was a temptation. Do you see how this, this can work? Uh, it's a very important thing going on here. And when he talks about, uh, but no one can say he's tempted of God. God cannot tempt anybody. There's no evil in God. He is pure light. You know, he is no, there's no contaminant, so to speak, in God. But of course, the devil comes, even when he comes to Jesus, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 4, in the wilderness temptation. It says, and then the tempter came. The tempter came. Okay. Adam and Eve, were they being tempted or tested? Well, yeah, but in that scenario, he is coming to tempt. Now, if you look at it, the, the, the deck, so to speak, was really in Adam and Eve's favor. It really was. When you consider... God had already given them power over what? What they name? 
everything, all those creatures. So they had power or authority over all the creatures, right? The other thing, how many trees do you think he gave them to partake of? Huh? And that was before the fall. It was like Maui on steroids or something. We don't know how many trees. Hundreds, thousands. And how many did he prohibit? One. What I'm getting at is God, he still does it. He stacks the deck in our favor. We'll look at this later, in a sense, to accept him and to obey him. But they went the other direction. I mean, we know what happened. And they opened that door and thousands and thousands we sit here today but that that that's that the issue going on here and we'll continue it says but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death do not be deceived my beloved brethren notice he uses the term beloved brethren he's giving them some harsh i mean some serious instruction here but he's saying but each one is tempted when he is drawn away. So it starts where? This is no longer an outside trial or a persecution. It's deep within the heart. You know, what that guy did in, in New Zealand started, not when he pulled the guns out of that truck, that started probably months, years in the heart. Something got in, you know, something. And the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You see, that's just a manifestation, physical manifestation, horrific manifestation of that which started inwardly at first. Does that make sense? And so he's trying to describe this. And if you keep a place here, but just turn back for a moment to Genesis chapter 2 and see how this kind of works itself out, even from the very beginning. Now, Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry. Um... It says, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God truly said, You shall not of every tree, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Was he telling a lie there? Was that a lie? Okay, but I mean, is he putting forth a proposition to her? God says you should not, he's, he's not, he's asking her a question, right? Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He's just asking her a question. At this point, he's not telling a lie. He's just, he's basically, what he's doing, he's throwing doubt on the word of God. You understand? Same thing going on today. Okay, pardon me? He's deception. He's the father of lies. So he gets her thinking, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall touch it, lest you die. Is she telling us true, true statement here? What's she doing? Adding to God's word. What didn't God say? If you touch it, and lest you die, or perhaps you'll die. She's quality. She's See, you, you cannot, this is bad math with the word of God. You cannot add to God's word. You cannot subtract from God's word. You must rightly divide God's word. Then he'll multiply blessings back to you. Think about it. He's adding to God's, she's adding to God's word. And another verse down, he'll take away from God's word. And, and in a sense, this is what's happening today. 
the word of God is under a major attack. Did you really believe God created all? There's a God he created. Do you really believe uh, a little baby's life has value? Do you really believe God has given us the institution of marriage? Do you really believe a loving God will have a final judgment? Do you really, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, nothing has changed, so to speak. Um, then he says, um, then the serpent said, verse 4, you will not surely die. There it is. There, there, there it is. He come in with doubt, and now he comes straight forward with a lie. You won't die. God said you will surely die. One of them is right. It's just like what these atheists that are going to universities today, Sam Harris, Hitchens' dead, but I mean uh, Dawkins, all these other guys, but they're saying there is no God. There is no God. And the Bible says there is a God. It's binary. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. You know what? I'm going to take this thing out. Let me just shut this one. Okay. Can you hear me back there? Okay, it's better. Yeah. What is that? Oh, okay. I'll get back there. One second. Uh, but do you notice, she, now what does the woman do here? I want to show this process of sin. Sin necessarily isn't an action. It's a process that results in an action. Do you understand? James uses that almost like conception, if you will. He says, now, and God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 5. So when the woman saw, notice the process is starting here now. She heard this. There's doubt on God's word. She saw that it was good for food. So there's an appetite. You know, it's appealing. That it was pleasant to the eyes, aesthetically. It, you know, it's appealing to physical, emotional, and then finally to, to you, you'll be wise. You'll be likened unto God, to pride. To make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband. Sin is rarely an orphan. Sin usually involves others. And that, that's, she included now Adam in it. The Bible will say Eve was deceived, but Adam came in with his eyes wide open. That's why the real onus of the fall is on Adam. Does that make sense? Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam and first Adam. All have fallen. In the second Adam, all can have life. So, okay, now let's go back to James and to your question. I just want to show from the beginning this sin process, James is explaining starts way back there okay verse 12 okay blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those that love him yeah probably but there are other crowns described in the scriptures you know there's a pastoral's crown there's a soul winner's crown there's a, but the idea being that Oh, yeah, that's not the issue. <laughs> People go through a lot of... Look, everybody born into this world goes through tests and trials. Do they not? Sickness, loss of loved one, uh, rejection, um, misunderstanding, calamities of sorts. So that doesn't make people go to heaven. You know, it just means it's part and part. Now, Christians may have more, particularly at different times in different parts of the world, because they're being attacked... Jesus says, if they persecute me, they'll surely persecute you also. So, but it's not the testings and trials that win us heaven. It, it, we never, never, any more than good deeds don't win us heaven. Do you understand? But good deeds are very important. And, and going through tests and trials 
faithfully depending upon the Lord and persevering, that's, that's like a crown of life. You know, there's this martyr's crown, do you ever hear? So that these kind of things that are in, but we don't win salvation. We don't win, yes, please. I can't hear Yeah, right from the get-go, again, he's talking to people that are going through it. You'll see the same thing in First and Second Peter. They are in the furnace. Not all the Roman emperors were as cruel as some, like Nero was, or Domitian, or some of these guys. Some would let the, you know, but it was a horrific time, and, and they were being misunderstood, and all of this other stuff. But you can see that same thing happen in the world today. You know, there's parts of the world you will be killed if you declare yourself to be a Christian. I mean, we see that on the news sometimes. They don't put it out there that much, but it's true. When they took those, what was it, 15 men on the Egyptian, on that shore, was that in Morocco? And then beheaded them, them in the own city. People that I knew, that I know, that know Arabic, says when that sound was on, they were giving praise to God and saying, Our Father. That Joyce, uh, Jeanette, a couple of Arabic friends of mine said, You could hear it. But what I'm saying, they're going through that persecuting suffering, probably the, the worst you can imagine, but they're going through it giving glory to God. You understand? We don't experience that kind, thank God, for this level, this time, but that's true around the world. And I said last week, you have a spectrum. If you study the book of Acts, first the apostles are, are uh, chapter 2 and 3, they're preaching, teaching, 3,000 more coming, and then they threaten Peter and John, don't preach this, and then they keep preaching it, and then they beat them, and then they beat him, and then they throw him in prison. And by chapter 7, what do they do to Stephen? Kill him. So what I'm getting at, you could, that same spectrum, continuum, is applied today. In missions, you, we have that grid that you have this country here, like America, it's freedom so far, to, to publish and to get the word of God out. You have other places you're under threat. They might shut down your email. They might do this and that. Other places... You might get beat, you might lose your job, other place you might be in prison, other place you might be killed. Do you understand? It's nothing new under the sun. And in missions, there's a great book we have called uh, Operation World, but it shows you every single country uh, where they fall on that continuum. Well, that's classic. I mean, when they counted the blind man, what did the apostles say to Jesus? Who sinned? This man or his parents? What did Job's three friends, good friends, say to him? <laughs> you had to have done something wrong, Job. <laughs> you know, why? Because man, man looks for causality. He says, if, if this is bad is happening to you, you must have done something wrong. If this real good thing is happening, you must be doing something right. It's, it's a false premise. It's, it's not right, you see? It's not scriptural. And, and we get things goofed up a little bit. Okay, now he talks about this process and how it, how it goes. Um, when you walk through this thing, first it starts with, within the heart, and then, then, it, then it moves forward, it's conceived, verse 15, then it brings forth, to, 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 bring, to give birth means it's now manifested, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Interesting, he's got the idea of birth and death in the same verse, because again, sin equals death. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Death, 
that's man's problem. You know, I was talking to a group the other day, and, you know, the, the man's problem is not immorality. Man's problem is not uh, sin and misbehavior. That's the fruit of it. That's the manifestation of it. Man's basic problem is he's dead. Okay? That's why it'll say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, cut off. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's why Christianity is like no other religion in the world. All other religions, if you study them, Muhammad, uh, Islam, Scientology, pick one. They have a founder. He gets some kind of revelation or insight or has a spirit comes to talk to him. He develops a teaching. He gets a, some followers. He gathers momentum. He dies. He leaves this instructional book. Not with Christianity. We got a, a dying and rising Savior. You understand? Yeah, was he a great teacher? The best. Was he a prophet? Yeah. Was he... But he didn't come to give us a new morality system or a new philosophy. He did in a sense. But his thing, the main purpose of the gospel was to preach what? Death, burial, resurrection. Because the essential transaction is Jesus did not come to make nice people nicer. He came to make dead people alive. You understand? Boom. This is very important as we approach Easter because you hear all kinds of crazy messages out there. Uh, and it's not coming from the New Testament. It just isn't. It's, it's the opinions of man. But the beauty of that is, is our, our salvation, in a sense, is not dependent upon what we do as much as it's dependent on what's been done. And when we receive that free gift, then we should be people, as it says in the epistle, zealous of good works. Hospitality, visit the sick, contribute to the poor, share the gospel, on and on and on. Somebody had their hand up on this? Okay, let's go through this. And, and, and of course, Jesus will say this idea that um, it's within man. It's in man. For it's out of the heart of man that comes forth all, all, all of these kinds of uh, processes. You know, uh, um, fornication and blasphemy and the evil eye and idolatry. It, it, it's, it's out here, but it, it starts, it's out of the heart of man that all of these things are incubated and come out. And... Um, you know, we see it. You know, we see on the news when it's manifested. And sin equals death. It's just what it is. You know, it's just, it's, a, it, it, it's very scriptural. And he says, then he says something very important. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The worst thing of all is to be self-deceived. Because this was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they thought they were what? They thought they were righteous. So, okay. Let me check the level. Let me get back up. Okay. They thought, oh, uh, they, okay, like an auctioneer. Um, they thought they were self-righteous. They, they thought they were righteous. They, they kept Sabbath. They were kosher. They fasted twice a week. And when Jesus healed the blind man, the blind man knew he was a sinner in need of a savior. But he says, they, they said to him, "Are we blind also?" He says, "If you were blind, if you knew you were blind, you could have been healed. But you're even more darkness now. Self-righteousness is self-deception. You see what I'm saying?" That's a big, it comes from pride. It comes from pride. That's a big problem, big problem today. You know, um, so he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift, now he lightens it. I mean, it goes through that whole sin and death and that issue. Now he says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What does that tell us about God's attribute or characteristic of God? changeless. He's eternal. What does it say about Jesus in Hebrews? He's the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. You know, God is he's immutable. He's changeless. Think of the sun. You know, it's always shining. It's always giving off heat. Even if it's behind a cloud or even at night, is the sun still shining? Yeah. But I mean, how much more so God in his presence is always the father of lights. You see what I'm saying? And it's from the father of lights, every good and perfect gift comes down to us. And there's no variation or shadow of turning. And this is very important in a world. Do you think our world is changing a lot today? I mean, we are changing at such a rapid speed, culturally, morally, in so many different ways. So a good friend of mine once says, when everything around you is changing, okay, at, at lightning speed, get with that which doesn't change. And one of the things that doesn't change is the attributes of God, the promises of God. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I started a good work in you. I'll bring it to fruition, okay? The word of God doesn't change. The will of God doesn't change. Get with those things that don't. That gives stability, actually, in very difficult times, you know. Um, so he says, of his own will he brought us forth by the, now he talks about this different kind of birthing process, if you will. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now he's talking about our new birth in Christ. You see that he talked about death and how it gives birth to death. You know, sin gives birth, conceives and gives birth to death. Now he's talking about how we are first fruits or we've been born into the kingdom of God. And you'll see this very similar if you go one book over uh, to First um, Peter. First um, Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 22 and 23. He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another with, fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides us forever. Because, notice again, he's going to use this phrase, James used, all flesh is as grass, the glory of man is as the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower fades away, the word of God endures forever. So both James and uh, Peter are talking about this new birth that comes about as a response to God's word. And of course, the gospel, John does too when he talks about being born again uh, from above. So here you have the inner circle of Jesus. Uh, well, you have, uh, you have John, you have Peter, but now this is not uh, the, the apostle James, but these three men are attesting to the new birth. Does that make sense? This is a very important point. And then he'll go far as to say in verse chapter 2, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the, the pure milk of the word that you might grow thereby. And that's a very important thing because one of the indicators of new life is laying aside the old life of sin, put off the old man, it says in Colossians. But it also, as every baby doesn't have to be instructed to desire milk. Am I right? It's just a natural built-in function. So too, when we're truly born again, we have an appetite or a desire for the Word of God. Does that make sense? If a, per if a person is truly born again and has no interest in the Word of God, that's problematic. It really is problematic because... What sustains them? How are they receiving instruction? What's their guidance system? What is, you know, that's why Jesus says, here Peter talks about milk, but uh, Jesus will say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? 
every word uttered by the mouth of God. And later Paul would say to the Corinthians, I wanted to feed you strong meat, but you couldn't handle it yet. You know the deeper truths of God's word. So you have milk, transition to bread, and transition to, to, to meat, all in regards to God's word. So important, and it is one of the indicators of new life. Any thoughts on this? Yes, please. That's a good point. You know, uh, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, for sanctification. Jesus said in John chapter seven, 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Then he says what? Thy word is truth. So our very sanctification is wrapped up in the word of God, knowing the word of God and obeying the word of God. And some of us can be anemic. Well, what do they call that when you don't eat? Is that anorexic? Or In other words, we're believers, but we're not strong because we just haven't consumed and, and exercised with the Word of God. Does that make sense? We, we, and it, we're, we've all, Christians have always said, but I think in our day and age, it's even more so. That's why it'll say in Peter, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks a reason for the hope that lies within you, but do it with meekness and respect for the other person. But you cannot get prepared when that person is asking a question. So if you, were to, you or I were to have coffee with somebody, you're sitting next to somebody on a plane, and they go, I saw you reading that book or the Bible. Why do you think Jesus is the only way? Or where does it say in the Bible he's God? Or what's up with the Trinity? Can you explain that to me? You know what I'm saying? Or why is Christianity different than other religions? Aren't they all pretty much the same? Or why do you think this is from God and not the Quran? I mean... These are basic questions, but could we answer those questions? If not, we're going to do a class in the fall, God willing, and we're going to get those. <laughs> but I'm saying we have to be equipped. Do you, do you understand? This is, that's not high theology. That's just like everyday kind of Christianity. And when Philip, who was not an apostle, he was a deacon, when God, by the Holy Spirit, says, go join yourself to that man in the chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he goes, and it's in uh, chapter 9 of Acts, and he's, he says to the Ethiopian, what are you reading? He's reading a scroll, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, I can't. Can somebody explain who is this man they're talking about? Is he a prophet or somebody? And he explains that's Jesus, and the Ethiopian says, I want to be baptized. I want to receive Christ. Now, what if Philip said, gee, that's a great question, you know? <laughs> Why don't you turn the chariot around? We'll go back to Jerusalem. We'll find some. But no, that was basic one, two, buckle my shoe, three, four, shut the door theology. You, you, you know what I'm getting at? We live in a day and age. I'm, we are just tremendous opportunity, I think, to share our faith, both to explain it, but also at a certain level to defend it. I don't think we necessarily always have to be defended, but we are called to, to offer a reason for the hope that lies in us. And our faith is reasonable. Anybody else have something? Okay. Okay, back to James here. Now, um, James will say, okay, verse 19. So then, my beloved brother, notice how he uses beloved brethren a lot. How does that translate in other scriptures? Verse 19. Dear brethren, dear, he's really got a pastoral's heart, but I think because they loved him and he loved his people so much, he can speak hard things to them. You know, he could say, come on, you know, repent, don't act like this stuff. But through it all, he's got this really kind of loving heart towards his people. 
Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. This was written 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> How many think that these three admonitions apply to us today? How many of us got in trouble because we were slow to hear, quick to speak, and we allow anger to grow to wrath and maybe rage, and we regretted it later? What he's given us is so succinct, you know, be swift to hear. You know one of the highest compliments you can give people is listen to them? It really is. It's one of the highest, with eye contact, with interest. It's one of the highest things you can do. Slow to speak. A good friend of mine says, you never learned anything while you're talking. <laughs> but we want to talk. I think that's what makes the news so crazy today. I mean, either side of it, I just, I don't call it the news anymore, I call it the noise. Because it's just, it's just, you know, it's just coming at you. You don't have time to, like, process. Am I right? We're not listeners anymore. I mean, culturally speaking. But to listen. I mean, when you think of our Lord talking about slow to speak, when you see when Pilate is questioning him, Pilate is really beside himself. If you study that in the four Gospels, he's going in and out. He's going out to talk to people. He comes in, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is sitting there. Who told you? what is truth? And he doesn't stick around to get the answer. But I mean, our Lord is just like sitting there. But that's what it said in Isaiah 50. He was led to slaughter like a lamb, but he did not open his mouth. You know. It says in the book of Proverbs, even a fool is esteemed to be wise when what? He's quiet. Yeah, he's just pondering things, you know. But it's true. It really is true. You know. We would really say more if we spoke less. <laughs> Think about it. Our words would have more power. And also, the thoughtless are seldom speechless. You ever notice that? I'm joking. Okay. Not joking, maybe. Okay. But it's this idea, he gives us these three admonitions. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And this idea of speaking, uh, when you look at the scriptures, what we say is, it, let me just put this down for a second. Maybe I can we move in three functional spheres. The thoughts, what's the other two? The words, our speech, and deeds. James, James doesn't talk about all three of these. That, that is really, we're tripartite being as a human being. But those are the three areas of our activity. Thought, word, and deed. And our job as believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, access to the Word of God, is to get these in alignment. You know, when you, the old days when you go to the eye doctor, you said those, those things would flip, you know. We're trying to get these things in alignment with not my will, but thy will be done. My deeds, my thoughts, my words. You see, get those. And, and James is teaching us how to do that. Otherwise, we, we could be right here. Our deeds could be good, but our intentions or motives are wrong. <coughs> or uh, our, our thought life could be pretty right, but we get angry at how we express it in words could be not Christ-like. You understand? We're out of alignment. And our whole thing, part of our sanctification process is bringing these three things that we have control over uh, under the uh, lordship of Christ. Thoughts on this? Yes, please. I 
Ah, I'll say that again. He, he often regretted his speech, but not his silence. Yeah. You never, you never have to eat the words you never spoke. You know, because how many times do we say, I wish I wouldn't have said that? Or, or sometimes people will say, but that's not what I meant. But that's not the issue. It's not what you meant. It, what you said is what people heard and remember. And words can be, words are very, very powerful in terms of uh, even how Jesus spoke about this, uh, that we are actually justified uh, by our words. He'll say, in, uh, turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, um, verse 33. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. He says, I'll put this on the board. Matthew. Our Lord says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For every tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? Speak good things. He's speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees here. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is just what James was talking about. The inner heart gives birth to sin in the process. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. So our words are part of that, you know, the light of God's judgment. You know, even as believers, we're going to stand before Christ and give an account. It says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's why Jesus says, if you confess me before men, verbally, I will confess you before my Father and his holy angels. If you deny me, I will deny you. It'll say in Romans chapter 10, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that he is risen from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But you see this idea of confession, the words? Words are extremely important, really extremely important. Yes, somebody want to say something about that? But that's, that's that idea that's, uh, and that's why really silence is a good default. It's not always because there's times God really wants us to speak and speak the truth into somebody's life. But uh, the big, big thing, okay, well, I'll wrap it up here in a second. Go back to James. And he says, um, so then, my beloved brethren, be, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And you, you kind of see this again with Peter in the garden when Jesus was arrested. What did Peter do? Do you think he was aiming with that sword to take the guy's ear off? Huh? No. He probably taking his head shot, you know, boom. But that was the last healing miracle our Lord did, but it saved Peter's life. Uh, a good lesson here with our words. We have to be careful with our words, okay? We don't want to cut off somebody's ear. They can't hear the gospel. Because seriously, if we're too harsh, we're too critical, and we're too judgmental, they close their ears. They want, they want to hear the good news. Okay, therefore lay aside. Now there's real practical. He goes here. 
Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness. Receive with meekness, once again, what? The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Here the emphasis again is on the word of God that is effectual. The word of God is living, Hebrews chapter 4 says. The word of God is like a seed. It has living potentiality. The Bible is like no other book in the world. You know, it's just, there's nothing like this. It's eternal. It's perfect. Uh, you can fill in the blanks. You see what I'm saying? But he's saying that's what you want to get inside you. That's what we want to get inside us. Implant a word which is able to save your souls. But be, now here's where James is James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, he gets this self-deception thing going. A lot of people, I mean, today, all across the land are hearing the word of God in some capacity. But do we, do we then become doers of the word? You know, there's a big gap from hearing and doing. And he's stressing here, you hear it, do it. And uh, again, it, it, it's not optional. It, it's, he's saying, this is actually going to be proof of an inner change. A transformed life should manifest transformed behavior. Um, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And again, this idea where the word of God is like a mirror. If you study scripture, I think there's like 30 different things, metaphors used for the word of God. It's called a, it's called a lamp under my feet. It's called bread. It's called meat. It's called uh, water. Uh, it's called all of these things. But one of them is mirror. Because... Why is the Word of God like a mirror? It shows us ourself, imperfection, sins. It can convict us. It also encourages us and shows us what we're doing right. But it has that capacity, when we look at it, when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, of course, that we can see ourselves. You know, we, it, it, it can point out sin. That's why one of the first signs of a backslider is he, is he closes the Bible. He doesn't want to, that, that revelation, that conviction that he's sinning. <clears throat> so the Word of God has that, that ability. But if, if you hear a sermon, if you hear a good teaching, and, and, and it convicts, but you forget about it, if I forget about it when I go out of the room, what good was that? You see? That's what I'll say in 2 Corinthians, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we, that's us, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Lord from, of the Holy Spirit we are being transformed into what image? Christ. That's the key. It's what's transformational. You know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are coming into the full stature of who we are to be in Christ Jesus. Paul prays for believers. I want to see you uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. At the, man was originally made in the image of God, right? Through the fall, we lost that. We still bear some of God's image, but it's a broken vessel, a broken image. Through Christ and what he's come to do, he's come to restore that image. Do you understand? It's a process once we come to Christ. But our sanctification is we're coming more and more into the image of Christ. None of us arrive, uh, but do you see how God is moving us to restore that which was lost at the very beginning? Okay. Um, and again, he, the classic way is, is beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we, we see this reflected. Uh, but one, verse 25, but he who looks at the perfect law of liberty, there's the word of God again, and continues in it, is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. There, there's a formula for blessing. 
reading the Word of God, allowing the Word of God to take hold in our hearts, doing the Word of God continually, as he says, and then receiving the blessing of God. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And we're going to pick this up about the words we speak, and man can control everything but his tongue. And when we see how much trouble uh, the tongue gets one into, and how it can be used of God to be a blessing. You know, it, it, it can, it, when, when Isaiah says uh, he's in the presence of God, remember what he says? Whoa, I am a man of unclean lips, and I deal amongst the people of unclean lips. Do you think we live in that time and culture today? But what was, what was before God sent him forth, what, what, how did he purify his lips? The coal from heaven. Remember, he says, now, go out. And so to us, we can have sanctified lips, sanctified speech. We'll talk about that. Any closing thoughts? Any of this on the book? Yes, please. How many times do you think you need to not share the time with just the other? Because people are always watching. Yeah, but we've got to be ready to... Here's the thing. Christianity is a verbal religion. I mean, if you study the book of Acts, a lot of times what Paul is looking for is a venue for discussion. He's looking. He doesn't care if he's on Mars Hill, he's in a prison cell. He's looking, I want to share this. But you're right, Cheryl. We're called lights of the world, that people would see us, that something attracts them. That's why it says be ready to give an answer to people that ask you. Is there something about your life or my life that people would ask? What, what, what do you... What do you owe this to? Why are you calm? Or why does your life seem to have purpose? Or peace? Whatever, whatever. You see? So yeah, I agree. Um, somebody else said, you have... Yeah, the parallel of being a doer of the word, you go back to the Sermon on the Mount area, uh, Matthew 7, 24. The two foundations? Uh, right. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and the rock, of course, there is in that, in that parable. Not Christ. Halfway, 50% right. Okay, they're 100% right. Okay, why this is important, not even in our individual lives, but in the corporate life, let's say, of a culture and society like America. We are dismantling that foundation, okay? We no longer live in a land where all people... Uh, that it's, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and the right to pursue happiness. The land is no longer like that. You understand what I'm saying? We're moving away from the foundation. And if you notice, the wind, the rain, and the floods came up on both houses. They were both tested. The one stood and the other fell. But you can see this in individual lives, or you can see it in cultures, in societies, when they move, move further and further away from God's word. Somebody, anybody else? Okay. All right, who would like to close us in a, in a, in a word of prayer, please?